Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to my good, bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better working now are we working now yeah now we're working oh great okay sorry sorry i don't know what's going on i think my um i i i downloaded this it doesn't matter it's technical i think it should be working now i've, I've rebooted the thing uh hi, oh rogue avocado hello hello good morning good morning michael oh, good morning guys all right i think it should be back here now We'll see. Um, anyway, that's all to say uh, it's her birthday. We did like a socially distant hi, hello, you know, the other, which was really nice. We like all wore masks and then sat far <laughs> down the table and ate sushi. We like, you know, I don't know. And nobody's, we've been very good about quarantine. So we were like, oh, we've been doing like Zoom yeah. birthdays for people and stuff. But uh, it's my brother, but like we're borderline not quarantined anyway it's like my brother you know i've like made contact and stuff with them and in the past like when we were starting um but then uh i don't know it was it was very nice it was went by and it was silly you know had had just like it was just, it, yeah it felt like old times you're like damn i miss seeing people it was cool <laughs> also yeah, it's just nice to go for a drive i think like maybe we should be doing that more people should be more like once yeah. in a while just because it's uh ah, i just felt good to get out of the house Yep, you know sure. the highways also like are amazing when there's no people yeah, on them. We've gone for a couple of drives in the mount desert in the mountains. It's it's pretty nice. Yeah, you got to do that. Well, um, all right. So I'm gonna get into it today. Now I guess now that I we've I fussed through the ten minutes of my sound not working and uh, whatever. I figure we'll just get into some questions because we got some nice questions this week. Um, welcome everybody. Anybody's yeah. here. If you feel like asking questions uh, throughout, just put them in the chat and I'll periodically go over and. 
and look in the chat window, uh, you're welcome to do that. That's the whole fun of this is making it sort of interactive. But I'm just going to go in the order that they uh, were received throughout the week. And thank you. Uh, these all came in through the My Good Bad Brain Gmail. So you can always email mygoodbadbrain at gmail.com and ask these questions. It's probably the best way to to do it, actually, because it's like so concise and I'll just check it. But um, all right. This person asked, um, I know quarantine stuff might be getting a bit much. Sure. But everything kind of gets magnified at this time. So my question or topic that I would love to hear you guys talk about is being mentally ill. For me, it's anxiety and depression. Feel you there. And uh, being in quarantine with a partner that is a normie. Uh, my mental illness is really taking a turn for the worse when isolated. And it is starting to take a toll on a relationship. Like talk about not knowing how much more one can take. Uh, any advice on how to handle that would be greatly appreciated. I don't want to wear him down, but I also want to be kind and accepting to myself. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about that because I, I will say this is a extremely relatable. This is the constant question of having uh, a neurodiverse brain with somebody who's more neurotypical uh, and being in a partnership with them. Um, I will say upfront, my, I think the hardest thing with this is basically exactly what she asked, which is, which is like, how much do I just, I think the trap that I'm always worried about falling into, I'll just say it that way. I'll say it as a negative. The trap I'm always worried about falling into is validating quote unquote myself so much that I'm just not doing anything and just becoming yeah. really insufferable and damaging to the people around me as well as myself and just being like, well, what do you want from me? I've got this problem. Right. So how do I make space for that? And also try to, you know, yeah. yeah. So it's a good question. And I'm certain that the, uh, that person is not alone in this experience. I imagine that many, many people and couples are having to confront this dynamic right now. And it's really hard, you know, you're kind of, um, separate from your typical support networks, maybe treatment providers also. Um, so I think it's a really hard time and that's, you know, the first thing to acknowledge. It's, it's probably a really hard time for both partners, right? Both the person who's asking the question and their partner who's separated from their support networks also. So what I would say that there are a couple parts of this. Okay. So one, I would actually start to be a little more careful about the use of labels like mentally ill and neurotypical, et cetera, or normie. <laughs> and the reason I would be careful about those is I would just ask yourself, what is the impact of using those labels? Is it making it easier for you guys to talk about these issues or is it uh, doing something different? And I think often what we see is that labels are shorthand for very complex dynamics and behaviors because it's just tiring to always describe things that we talk about a lot in their full uh, complexity, right? So we just use a label. But also the, the impact of the label can be to shut down conversation. And if you find yourself using those labels and then arriving at an impasse over and over again, I would think carefully about how much it's helping you to do that. Even internally, like, oh, my partner's normal and I'm ill. Mm. Well, that sets up a particular dynamic and that dynamic may not be working for you guys. And so if that's the case, uh, again, I would just be careful about addressing, uh, be careful about using the, um, the labels. The reason we use labels like diagnoses is because they point to treatment options, right? It's important to know whether somebody's demonstrating symptoms of depression, demonstrating symptoms of anxiety, demonstrating symptoms of uh, thought disorder, because those are going to point us to different treatment options. So that's the point of using those labels. 
All right. So I would just think about that, number one. And then number two, you know, the thing about having anxiety symptoms and depression symptoms and having them get exacerbated in a stressful time when you're more isolated, which makes a lot of sense, is that it can be hard to kind of um, stick to your values maintain healthy boundaries and to, and to do things that are effective. And I think that's what you got to figure out because, you know, one of the core assumptions of, of a treatment that I like uh, DBT is that you are not responsible for all of your problems. You're not, but you are probably going to be responsible for fixing them. Right. right. So, you know, when it's a, when there's a partner involved, it's a tricky dynamic because your part, you know, you want to have expectations of your partner you want them to be kind of involved in your health and wellness. At the same time, it's very important that you don't outsource your emotion regulation responsibilities to your partner because yeah. that's a quick way to burn them out. And it's a quick way for you to get frustrated, especially if you have like a really nice partner who's like really wants to help and be supportive. They'll probably take that role on for a little bit, but nobody's going to be able to regulate your emotions for you. Um, and so they're going to get resentful and you're going to feel bad for asking. So what I would encourage you to do is to, in a moment when you're feeling a little better is to think really carefully, what are my responsibilities? What am I asking of this other person? And for you guys to talk about those boundaries together when you're feeling like relatively well-regulated so that you know what the kind of boundaries and expectations are. Uh, and then I would figure out once you kind of have delineated those things uh, in a, and you guys have to be, you know, it's tough to do that. You got to be like radically honest with each other about what you want and what you're willing to do there. You know, there might be some hurt feelings that come up just, um, commit in advance to having a radically honest conversation, mm. taking some time to process it, and then really trying to stick to the boundaries and responsibilities that you guys come up with together. Um, so, you know, to your point, Jared, like, yeah, validate you. you I think every conversation should start with validation, but you got to remember validation is step one. It's not the last step. Right. Validation is what you do so that you're ready to act. So you know, you can validate yourself. You really should do that. But then you have to take the responsibility for regulating your own emotions. And it, sometimes it's appropriate to ask for help from your partner, especially if it's something you guys are both involved in. But um, they need to be prepared also in advance for what that ask is going to look like and what the boundaries look like. Does that, I know that was a lot. No, Does no, that, that, no, it makes sense. It, it's tricky. It's, it's uh, just living in something. I think that is that dynamic. You know, I was, I was, I brought this up actually last night talking to Allie just about stuff and, and something that you said a few weeks back about the difference basically between your perception of like, you know, psychology, quote unquote, and social work. And this idea that uh, it's funny because it makes me think of like that, if, I mean, very Easter, that Christian thing about like faith without works is dead, you know, that kind of a thing. But that idea yeah. that um, the image we get in our heads uh, culturally of what mental wellness work is is like laying on a couch and ruminating you know and and that like if we just solve the puzzle of where this thing came from then maybe we'll know oh it was because your mother was thought your butt was too tight or something like that and then you'll like fix your problems 
And this like it's a very like bougie sort of thing. This thing of like, oh, you don't have any real problems. How do we get you to a place that you can actually uh, live the amazing life you have and stop creating Woody Allen yeah. neuroses? For you? You're, that's the yeah. idea. And it's not ex- this one weird trick, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It. Yes, it's not this one weird trick. Yes. So like the other thing about it is, I think. The problem with that sort of vision of things that's, you know, given to us by a lot of funny movies and stuff like that, but I'm going to, as my analyst says this, you know, is that if you actually do have mental illness, A, it's hard to validate it in the first place because you think like this is not a working person's problem. This is, this is a fake problem. This is just in my head. I'm just going to get over it. And you don't feel like you're even allowed to give yourself the, the truth of like, wow, this is a fucking real issue. This is a thing that's tough to deal with. So you start there. Like you already have this class stuff of like, this is a rich person's problem. This is the problem. Yeah. Or so, and then on top of that, if you do try to get into doing that, especially as someone who may be like most of us are in a life, life situation that materially does not support you. Just, you know, that whole thing they say eccentricity is the luxury of the rich or something like that. That like, if you're a mentally ill person and very, very rich, then you're just eccentric. But if you aren't, then you're basically non-functioning oh, yeah. and you know crazy. So, sure. so I think it, this idea of uh, a type of pro- project, like a type of work on one's own mental wellness that is oriented towards a kind of rumination, one weird trick. We're just going to talk this out and figure out my dreams versus something that is functional. That is like this idea of social work, this idea of like, Hey, the labels are only there so we can understand the problem and start approaching it. But the labels aren't like who you are. They're not like, you know, you know, whatever the fuck that you're just looking at people the same way you look at people who come in, in a, in a more traditional uh, medical like sort of ER and be like, well, do you have a cold? Do you have a broken leg? You're a person that we're just trying to figure out what the issue is so we can help you feel well. And, um, and that, I don't know, like in a personal interpersonal relationship uh, on that same note is like, I guess the thing that always is hard to to figure out is like the line between these, I don't know what to do, how to describe them, like diagnosable sort of situations, things that are, that there's some research and, and literature behind and, and processes maybe uh, of approaching. And then ideas of like codependency, like real behavioral things that yeah. we see, which which can be from such a, a good hearted place. So I was just gonna say like in, in my personal relationship, like I think we we've been quarantined together. We're close together. We're both very sensitive. We're both very interested in being good partners but don't always know the best way to do it. And sometimes it creates this like gift of the Magi thing where you're like, uh, you know, if I'm overreacting or, or having like a, a thing because of my ADHD or depression or something like that, and that's negatively affecting my partner, then I want to like lock down on it and, and, and try to control all of it and, and not reach out at all. But then they, they can sense the tension in the air and they, they are so sensitive and weird that they can't be okay until I'm okay. And then it just turns the, this feedback loop of like, who's not okay and who's causing it. Right. And right. so trying to figure out how to ride that line of, uh, uh, I think it's always ends up being accepting a kind of paradox of, like you said, like taking responsibility and doing everything that I can, but also allowing another person to help, but also knowing that I it's okay if I want to help somebody else, but I have to be able to distinguish between them and me. And like, like I used to do this thing for sure that when my partner was having some anxiety or something like that, that was definitely 
a, a thing their brain was doing to them, the way that I experience my own things, not necessarily based in like reality, you know, that I, I don't know. I, I'd almost like I'd try to help in the ways that I think would help me. And then it wouldn't be helping. And then I would almost, I would like get annoyed and be like, why aren't you allowing yourself to be helped? And then like basically make the situation worse because now it was, I was making it about me, you know? So I think just being able to know that your heart's in the right place and then distinguish this, you know, basically untangled codependency and know like, this is where I end and where you start. We are, we are separate people interested in helping each other, but it's not all about me or all about you, there's got to be this way to ride that line. Right. And I I think kind of, you know, to sort of, to try to kind of, um, I don't know, boil down a lot of what we've been talking about. I think the, the bottom line to remember is that acceptance, which is like validation and change go together, like cooking and cleaning. Cooking's great, you know, what cooking like is validation. Cook in this analogy. Cooking is great. It's awesome, you know. But if you just cook all the time and you never clean the fucking dishes, just it's gonna be a mess. Yeah. You gotta do both. You have to accept and validate and also change. And you know, the thing is, like you wanna recruit helpers, but the onus is on you because no one can change you. Right. I mean, really, that if we could figure out how to change people against their will, uh, <laughs> or figure out how to change people when they weren't really doing the change work themselves, I mean, Jesus, we the world would be totally different. Yeah. So unfortunately, and you've probably already done a ton of change work. You know, that that's the thing to remember also. It's like if you're writing in and asking us, I'm sure you've done a ton of change work already yeah. on your own. The thing is, you gotta keep doing it. <laughs> that's the problem. You know, you gotta keep doing it um yeah that's really funny that like that that constant lesson of repetition it can be rather frustrating but yeah yeah and and i think you have to just rearrange your perspective they're like oh when can i be done with like maintaining my health never you'll never be done doing it forever uh and you got to just find a way to do it that's like tolerable and maybe even enjoyable and fun and sometimes you don't do it as well and you sometimes take a little break and you know, that's fine. The time horizon for change extends infinitely into the future. So you can always keep on going, you know? Yeah. I think that's, that's a good, uh, it, it reminds me of like physical fitness stuff, uh, that for me, my, you know, and I, I've gone, we've gone 28 days straight of quarantine calisthenics, which is crazy. Like for it's amazing. Uh, but one thing I've been finding with that and just as my thoughts, you know, one, sometimes it's like somebody has to ask you a question for you to, to jujitsu is like that all the time. Like as you're coming up belts and you're starting to get better, sometimes you don't realize like how well you know a technique or, or you don't realize even what your technique is until someone asks you and you have to like describe what you do. Um, that I've realized like my personal beliefs now around physical well, fitness, physical fitness and wellness, whatever, um, is very much related to the mental health thing, which is you cannot be results oriented. You just can't. Because your body's a, a sandcastle. Once you've done anything long enough, you'll get injuries. You'll get life setbacks that stop, that will always move your goalpost. Like you can't be results oriented in taking care of yourself. That the only way you won't, at least for me, I guess. Because for me, the idea of infinity is too insane. Like if I don't have a, fi- if I get obsessed with something like a conclusion and then realize there's no conclusion and I obsess over that. I, I will just overwhelm myself and stop, you know? Yeah, so I have right. to learn how to create processes that I enjoy. 
that like, you know, rhythms and experiential things that I'm like, I enjoy this process. So like with working out, for instance, switching my mentality from how many reps did I get or whatever, instead of what does my body feel like, you know, switching to what does my body feel like? What is it like getting into my muscles today? Am I, I'm, I'm much less uh, inclined to focus on how many pushups I did in terms of a number uh, as I am to think like, how did my body feel in the pushups? How, you know, controlled yeah. was my repetition? How focused on my shoulders was I? Things that, you know, are very present. And I think right. in general, trying to create processes that we enjoy the process of, I know I've just repeated myself like over and over again, but it's because this thought yeah. is sort of formulating as I say it. That seems crucial is to get get patterns and rhythms and and practices and habits that you enjoy. Yeah. Right. So I think the way that I would kind of frame that in, in this context, what I, I totally agree, is that those processes in this case would be like values and boundaries. So you may just not be feeling good one day, you know, and it may not be in the cards for you to feel totally free of any symptoms that day. I would actually abandon that idea and focus on your values for how you want to act yourself and how you want to treat your partner and sticking to the boundaries that you guys have agreed are like the healthy boundaries for you. And I bet you, if you stick to your values and boundaries and abandon the idea of like immediate relief, that if you keep going through and upholding those processes, I bet you when you reflect back on your experience of symptoms that they, you will, you will find some relief. I bet that will happen. On that um, note, and, and maybe getting a little bit granular, but I just like to try to do this, you know, because the most functional things are like what I what I want to do. Do you have any ideas about like specifically speaking to this thing of quarantine, right? Like I can't leave the house. I can't go to just go to work. Like you said, th- your partner's support systems may be less. You really are with each other. Like, do you, have you found anything or, or is there anything that exists in literature already for like good ideas of like if things get heated or if if things start to get too like overwhelming i'm i'm really like bleeding onto my partner and vice versa like actual strategies like do we just like separate and go to separate corners for a few minutes put headphones on you know like what what are good ideas if we're stuck together so i mean there's like a whole kind of couples therapy literature that you know people can get into um but yeah, I think there is no quarantine literature yet. I guarantee. I certainly think there will be one after this. Yeah. Uh, there will be a large and growing quarantine literature uh, following this experience for people. But but yeah, I mean, um, taking a break from each other if you you know if you have the space to do that, totally appropriate to do. Agreeing that not every problem has to be solved on the first conversation. Yeah, that's good. Agreeing that at baseline you love and care about each other. Um, and that's the kind of bedrock of your, um, interaction. And on top of that can be frustration, anger, disappointment, uh, all that stuff can be kind of on the surface, but at the, at the root is your love and caring for each other. Um, and then, yeah, making sure that you are validating each other, like really. And there's a, there's a lot you can read about how to validate. Like I think DBT has some really good interpersonal, I mean, one of the core skill groups of DBT dialectical behavior therapy is interpersonal effectiveness. And there are like worksheets in the DBT um, workbook, which you can buy on Mm -hmm. Amazon. It's like 20 bucks. And there's a a lot of stuff in there. Um, 
you know, there, there are like templates for how to ask for things, for how to say no. Hmm. Um, there are templates for figuring out your interpersonal um, values. I so, I've I've had somebody else specifically recommend the DBT workbooks that are on Amazon. So I mean, like, so that sounds like pretty like a good resource. I should have probably gotten a yeah, long time ago. Oh wait, say that again. You broke. There's up. also a website. Sorry, you're breaking up a little bit there, but but there's also a website called dbtselfhelp.com, and it has it's not as like nicely um, laid out as the book, but it has all of the same skills, you know. Cool. So and that's. Free. That's actually really good to know about. Oh yeah, I see. This is great. I didn't realize. Okay, cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah. All right. Yeah, that's good. I, I agree with that. I would also endorse if you have a few extra bucks, uh, uh, noise canceling headphones. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Amazing. Just trap you in your own little world. It's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, that's that's helpful. I th- okay, let's do the. I'm gonna do another question. We're gonna move on to this next question. Um. Let me go to the right screen. I've been clicking around. Uh, hi. Okay. This question relates to Dr. Nick Barr's discussion of fusion and diffusion in ACT. Um, I'm just going to read the question. I don't, fusion, diffusion, ACT. I'm wondering if he can discuss how dissociation might relate to this. I tend to be in either fusion or complete dissociation and feel like I can rarely hit that sweet spot of diffusion without completely intellectualizing away my lived experience. I have ADHD, BPD, and PTSD, and often go into prolonged dissociative states. So I'm going to just a few of these. Let's see. Uh, obviously, ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. BPD is bipolar disorder. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Borderline personality disorder. What did I say? Bipolar? Bipolar uh, disorder. I'm sorry. I meant to say. Is that like a, is that, are those different things or is that, those are different things. Yes. yes. Borderline personality disorder is totally different. Sorry. Thanks for correcting me. Glad we have a fucking doctor here. (laughs) Um, And then uh, what is ACT? Well, okay. So I'm sorry to be annoying. It's actually ACT. Oh. ACT is something different. So they, and the, the developers of ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy, they like are very um, strident about you calling it ACT, not ACT because ACT is something else. So ACT is a, yeah, sorry. No, don't be sorry. This is important. Like I'm like, okay, good. Now we know. It's not me. But uh but ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy, which is like a third wave behavioral um intervention. So the third wave interventions are things that incorporate mindfulness, like ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and dialectical behavior therapy, DBT, which I reference a lot. Right. And DBT is was initially developed and validated for work with people who have borderline personality disorder. Also, I'll just say that term borderline personality disorder, it's like a, it's not a very useful descriptive term. Uh, it's, it, it's a Freudian term and it, it dates from when people thought that you had, that the spectrum of mental illness was psychosis and neurosis and people who had something in the middle that was like neither psychosis nor neurosis, they called borderline. Got because it. it was between psychosis and neurosis. But of course, we were, we're far past that conceptualization now. So a way to think about this is a emotion regulation disorder. That's how um, Marshall Linehan, who is a psychologist who developed uh, DBT, that's how she conceptualizes the disorder. And I think it's the most um, 
effective and, and evidence-based conceptualization. So it's an emotion regulation disorder. That's okay. so interesting. I'm just slightly hijacking, but like, cause I think it's about ADHD stuff a lot as well as, as I've come to understand it, how poorly named that is, how poorly named and described and understand that is. And I try to describe it to people now is instead of thinking of a attention deficit, hyper, blah, 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 is it's better just to think of it as a focus regulation disorder that like, you yeah. can't regulate because you hyper focus sometimes as well as having scattered focus. And that like, it's just interesting to to hear this other thing is like emotion regulation, focus regulate. Like, it's just that. Yeah. I mean, look, think about how things get named. It's like the first person to traction with their article, their name gets adopted. But that doesn't mean name or that it reflects like the best available evidence. It probably doesn't. You know, if it's been studied well over time we should be learning more and probably what we learned is going to discount some of the earlier assumptions. So, you know, but we're stuck with the name. So whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's very good. You know, is the point, but, but yeah, so this person is talking about cognitive diffusion and, and, you know, getting stuck in either fusion or dissociation. So, you know, and I think they mentioned that they have a PTSD diagnosis. So, and a, and a BPD diagnosis. Do you mind before so, going, can you explain about that fusion diffusion thing a little bit? Yeah. So, so cognitive fusion is a term that's used to describe the experience of having a thought and having that thought take over your attention so that you have a thought pop in your mind, like, oh, this person doesn't like me. And then you laser focus on that thought and that thought expands and occupies your whole reality. And you utterly believe that thought and you're utterly invested in that thought to the expense of everything else. So that would describe the process of being fused to a thought, right? Like it's inescapable. That thought, suddenly you're in the balloon of that thought. Okay. And then diffusion is the process of like separating the observing self from the thought that is occurring in your mind. So there's me, Nick, and then thoughts arising in my mind and emotions arising in my mind and falling away from my mind. They arise into my attention and they fall away out of my attention. Okay. That would be akin to cognitive diffusion. Like I'm having the thought that this person doesn't like me. It's just a thought that's arrived in my mind. It may be true. It may be not. There's me and there's this thought that I'm experiencing and I want to respond to that. Do I care about it? Yeah. Do I want to collect some more evidence? Okay. Maybe. Do I care about it? No. So do I want to collect evidence about it? No, because I don't care one way or the other. You know, Yeah. That, that would be more akin to the process of diffusion. But then dissociation is when you have the experience that what's going on in the world is not real. That, you know, sometimes you're your body isn't real and your sensory experiences aren't real or your thoughts aren't real. Uh, it's as if you're, you become untethered from your body or experiences. I have experienced that like a well, lot. It, yeah. Yeah. And actually, especially for people who have like childhood trauma that accounts for some of their PTSD symptoms, dissociation is a way for, is it, it's actually a, uh, a way for the body to uh, and the mind to cope with traumatic experiences because especially when you're young or if you're trapped and you're not able to escape or fight uh, 
dissociation is protective, can be protective in an immediate uh, trauma or crisis setting, right? It insulates the brain from processing all these horrible experiences. Yeah. Okay. So, so, you know, it's a built-in function of the brain. The problem is it's not a useful strategy for like dealing with your everyday life, right? So um, in BPD, which is an emotion regulation disorder where the, the person has a natural predisposition to experiencing super intense emotions and they may not have learned effective coping strategies for regulating those emotions, like they were born with a Ferrari engine and nobody taught them how to drive it, you know, and when you have a Ferrari, you really have to be a good driver, right? So then it becomes easier to see how that person could dissociate more because they are just overwhelmed by intense emotion a lot. And they don't have the effective tools and strategies to regulate those emotions. So the, the kind of the way to deal with this when you have uh, PTSD and BPD, one or the other or both together, is you got to get treatment to learn effective uh, emotion regulation strategies and physiological relaxation strategies. Okay, you got to learn how to calm the body down and then regulate emotion. Right. Yeah. And just and just thinking about it, like just thinking, ain't gonna do it. You have to physically relax the body with things like deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation, intense physical exercise activating the dive reflex, running your face or wrists under cold water. There's a list of these strategies in the DVT book. Um, and the skills area is called distress tolerance, short-term crisis survival strategies for when you're at super high emotion activation. And most of them are physiological to regulate the, the body. But then there is the emotion regulation side, which is the long kind of steady work of learning to, um, regulate your emotion to get your emotions back into the bandwidth where you can be effective where you can act effectively. It doesn't mean you feel no distress. It just means they're back down in the bandwidth where you can act effectively and in accordance with your values. Okay. Right. And that takes like daily work. You have to be hitting these skills every day. It's like, um, training, you know, it's, it's just, it's tr literally training for your brain. The good news is if you do this training for, I mean, the, the, like the most evidence supports DBT for about a year, but if you do this training consistently, you will learn these skills. You will start to apply them with less and less effort and you'll get lasting change. I mean, you will, but you, you got to work those skills mm. um, every day. So, so just trying to think your way to the sweet spot of diffusion, it's not going to work, especially if you have uh, BPD symptoms and PTSD symptoms. You've really got to learn physi physiological relaxation and emotional regulation, and you have to practice those skills every day. And then once you've adopted those skills, you will notice that you're able to start getting to that sweet spot where uh, diffusion doesn't result in dissociation. Yeah, that makes sense. It's interesting. It, it made me think of, I don't know, I, um... I think as an uneducated person, I tend to do the thing artists do with physics principles, which is like you just see something and you're like, wow, that's like applies to everything. But uh, so forgive me for this metaphor, but it's, it feels like or analogy rather. 
that, um, you know, I, I did this, uh, some of this, uh, mobility training, you know, just took a seminar or two and did some stuff and I forget what it's called, but it's the one that does cars, you know, controlled articulated rotations and stuff. It's like very intense. It's very like, um, you're, you're flexing the whole time. They call it radiating and you're trying to just control your muscle. Anyway, the, the theory that they have with it, uh, is basically that like when you think you're inflexible, when you think, you know, that their theory is actually, it's not that you're not flexible. It's that you're just weak. Your muscles are weak in these end ranges of motion that you have the ability to go there. Like your body could be twisted into these positions, but it would hurt a lot. And you have no regulation over the muscles when they are like, you'd have no neural pathways when you are in these extended, they call it end ranges of motion. Um, And so that the practice, it's very intense, it's very uncomfortable, but I think if you've had any uh, experience with strength training, you can pop into that mindset quicker where you go like, okay, so I'm actually not just trying to stretch here and live in this pain. I'm trying to increase my strength and carve new neural pathways in my central nervous system that help me command in this region. Like you'll do one of the exercises is literally like your feet are on the floor, like, um, without socks, well, you can have that socks on, but when you, and you try to just lift your big toe and then you try to leave the big toe down and just lift your other three toes. And it's so fucking hard. Like you start doing these just little things. You're like, Oh my God, my, but I have no control over these individual things. Um, but anyway, Part of the thought is also like when you're doing some of the work with your external <laughs> rotating and your hip flexors and zones that are very tight on people. And I apologize, they're getting so physiological, but whatever. Uh, that it can be very intense and you start cramping, you'll just cramp. And one of the things that the, they teach when they teach it is that like, don't be so afraid of cramping. Everybody tries to immediately run away from cramping. They go like, ah, ah, ah and get it out and Charlie horsing. But they were like, I promise you, if you sit in some of these cramps that you'll be okay. Like it'll hurt, but you'll be okay. And it'll relax eventually. And there again, their suggestion is the reason you cramp potentially is that your body's so unused to working in these end ranges of motion that your body, your brain basically panics and sends so much signal to say like, turn on, turn on because you're trying to, cause you have no regulation down there that it just cramps. It just turns on like, you know, a hundred percent. It's like turning the faucet on all the way. And it's only by sitting in those positions and practicing there that your body will learn how to regulate and say like, oh, okay, we don't need to turn on like all the way. We can just do a little bit and tell it what to do. And that's how you teach your nervous system to like be more flexible by and strengthen those end ranges of motion. I think that's a really good analogy. I mean, the thing I would say is that also like when you start to do this stuff, when you depart from your old um, style of regulating, uh, you will f- experience discomfort because you haven't learned yeah. the new skills well enough to use them effectively. And you're trying to not use the old strategies because they have not served you. And so you're kind of stuck in this liminal zone where like, you don't have anything that works that well in the moment. Um, and that's normal. So is, you know, on the, in the framework that contains the stuff on the pathway to feeling better is a lot of discomfort. And so um, that's why it's useful to have a a therapist that you're talking with because they are like, yes, you know, this is an evidence-based set of skills. You're on the right track. It's, it's normal to experience discomfort. You know, it's useful to have that person to kind of help steer you a little bit as you do the work. Um, But, you know, you got to just know that, that skills acquisition and abandoning ineffective strategies, uh, it's going to yield periods of discomfort. And that that's evidence that you're on the right track. 
I always reassure myself too that if you've been tough enough to get through without any of these tools at this point, then you're tough enough to deal with the discomfort of getting better at it. You know, it just helps me like to think through that stuff. Are there any that made me think? I, I have a question about this too, just related to the dissociation thing. Are there any extant strategies for creating sort of like reality anchors? You know, that like if I do start dissociating so much that I can go like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like I, I have this, I wrote like a poem one time that I was like, based on a real experience where I was like, I just took an edible. I was too high, <laughs> like a long time ago when I was inexperienced with it. And I remember just like mantraing to myself that like in the moment, but it became like something I still remember was like, uh, uh, I'm real, you're real, we're here and things matter. And I would just like repeat that to myself. I'm here, you're here, we're real, and things matter. You know? I love that. Also, I just, I just saw a poem that was like the first line of quarantine emails that people have been receiving. Oh, I saw that too. Oh, so funny. But yeah, that's great. So, I mean, yeah, the tried and true strategy for getting out of dissociation is narrating senses in this present moment. So what are you seeing? What are you tasting? What are you smelling? What did you are you say, touching? What? Did you say narrating experiences? Sorry, it fritzed out right when you said narrating the input coming in through your five senses in this moment so what does it feel what does your butt feel like in the chair what is the grip of, what are the armrests of the chairs feel like in your hands is are they soft are they hard is there wood grain you know what color is the rug in front of you what sounds are coming into your ears like getting grounded in your five senses because your five senses are pretty much always receiving direct input from the present moment so that that's the strategy and we do that in you know like if someone starts to kind of go into dissociation you're like okay come back to the sound of my voice tell me what your seat feels like in the chair tell me what your hands feel like on the armrest open your eyes what are you seeing you know that's really useful that's like so immediate and yeah that's good i didn't even know i remember being led through some of those exercises that were like super helpful in therapy just for coming out of my head and uh, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've spoken on here before, but like a, a moment of epiphany I think about often was being in, in a therapy session and my therapist just offhand saying like, how you feeling? Or like, like, you know, yeah, just how you feeling? Like meaning, um, how's it go? Something like that. Something like offhand. And I just realized I couldn't feel my body. Like I was like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I literally don't know what I'm feeling. And then we went through this exercise yeah. of like feeling the chair and stuff. Yes. But anyway, um, okay, and we'll do this last, uh, we got like 10, 10 more minutes, I think. We'll just do this last question that we got this week that I, I wanted to just include. Um, okay, because it's kind of related to the last thing a little bit, PTSD stuff. Wondering if you dudes can talk about PTSD-related short and long-term memory loss and some tools to help with that. Some days I'm super on top of things, and others, like yesterday, are filled with me getting increasingly frustrated with myself. Also wondering if there's a crossover of PTSD memory loss and depression brain fog and if you can explain what's going on in my brain when I'm experiencing them. Yes. So I love this question. I just sent you a little link here with just a little resource, but I'll, I'll pull more. So let's start with PTSD. So PTSD is hypothesized to be a disorder of memory and fear processing. Okay. So there's a part of your brain called the head, which is like this little organ. And this is a growth. Wait, hold on. Slow down. Wait, hold on a second. I'm going to ask you to restart that. Uh, hippocampus because something's happening with our, our our connections getting fritzy but go go again okay. go again yeah so there's a this is an oversimplification but you can think about this little part of the brain called the hippocampus as kind of the memory storage unit okay and what happens in 
processing is that memories get tagged with a date and time stamp and they go into the hippocampus. And so then when you retreat. Oh man, what's happening? Hold on. Dr. Nick, did I lose you completely? No. Then this is Wait, hold on. PTSD. Nick, Nick? Are you there? Hello? Yeah. Can you hear me? Oh, you like uh, totally disappeared for like um, th- 20 seconds or something. Are you there? Okay. Uh, how about now? Oh, this is so frustrating. We're like right in the good stuff right at the end here. Um, try it again. I'm going to just text you to not to use internet just in case. Oh, it's okay. We're almost, uh, we're almost done here too. I think. Um, okay. um so back up yeah, again. So, I'm sorry to back you up to hippocampus again. Yeah, no worries. So campus is like this little organ in the brain that you can, you can think of it as storing memory. With me? Yes. Okay. And, Normal and no. What is happening? With like Sorry, a date man. and a stamp. Ugh, gosh, golly. Do you want to try uh, disconnecting and reconnecting from the call? Yeah. I'll do okay. That. Okay. Do that one real quick. Hi, are you there? Yeah. How's that? Way better. Weird. Okay. Hippocampus. So, um, yeah. So hippocampus is like a little memory storage unit in the brain. And in normal circumstances, it would get tagged. A memory would be tagged with like a date and a timestamp. And then you could retrieve it to, you know, when you remember it and it's located in that date and time and your emotional experience is uh, related to a past event. Right. But in a trauma memory, there is a disruption in how it gets stored in the hippocampus and in the kind of network that processes memory, which is attached to the limbic system and involves emotion. And so your brain doesn't store that as a past memory. And every time it comes up, it feels like it's happening right now. It doesn't get tagged with that date and timestamp. It gets like misfiled, the, the trauma memory. So PTSD really is... Uh, a dysregulation in the fear and memory processing network. Okay, so it so it absolutely does impact memory. The other thing is that if you are experiencing trauma symptoms often, trauma symptoms put your body uh, into a hyper alert, hyper uh, activated state. It it's um, the activation of your sympathetic nervous system, which is preparing you to like fight or run. And when you're in that physical state, your brain's not, your prefrontal cortex, which is like your executive function and memory storage, that's not happening. Your body doesn't need to be doing that. You don't need to be doing like higher order thinking, planning, reasoning, because your body's like, oh, I'm in danger. I don't need to be like doing math. I need to be like getting ready to get the fuck out of here. Okay. And if you're getting triggered and in that state often, it disrupts your ability to process memory and encode memory. So that's like kind of the PTSD side of things. If you also have depression symptoms, and by the way, I've never seen anyone who has had, you know, ongoing PTSD symptoms who does not also have depression. And some people argue that, you know, chronic expressions of PTSD are really indistinguishable from comorbid PTSD and depression. Mm. Um, but depression, we, we now believe is actually associated with a hyperactivation of the brain. It's not like a, dep- like a slowdown of the brain. It's the reason people feel just like exhausted mentally yeah. is because their brain is so overactive, ruminating and worrying and 
you know, having other cognitive processes associated with depression, that there's just this exhaustion. Anxiety has a similar thing, doesn't it? There's like an anxiety when people have anxiety, they're just so over, they get the same. I've never seen someone with depression doesn't also have anxiety. That seems to be my experience as well. Like, cause, cause I've never been diagnosed with anxiety, but it's like indistinguishable so often when I read or see things, you know? Yeah. It's not, you know, some people who have anxiety don't report depression, but I've never had anyone. I've never treated anyone with depression. Doesn't also have anxiety. Mm, Interesting. So, so when you have depression and PTSD, by the way, PTSD used to be classified as, as an anxiety disorder. Now it's its own thing, but there's overlap. Um, so, you know, when you have those things happening together and your body is in this elevated reactive state, you're not encoding memory in a normal way. So you have to calm the animal, right? You have to calm the animal so that your brain and your body know, I'm, I don't need to fight. I don't need to run. I'm in a safe place. This is now. And that will allow you to start encoding memory in a more um, like normative way. Uh, but again, you know, if, if you have one of these complex disorders, like if you have complex PTSD with comorbid depression, I really think you got to get treatment. I know that's very hard to do right now. Certainly there's kind of like self-help steps you can take, mm-hmm. but there's no substitute for like a really skilled therapist helping you to manage the stuff. But, but the short answer is it, it makes sense that that's happening. You know, um, memory disruption is part of both of these problems. It has to do with um, kind of disrupted storage in the hippocampus uh, and the overactivation of the sympathetic nervous system and the body's fight or flight reflex, which interferes with um, um, executive functioning and kind of like managing complex information. Yeah, that's really helpful. That makes sense. They they do feel so related that that you know the the brain fog thing. I totally relate to I, it, it's conf- i mean i've talked about this before and just again as a non-educated not trained person just someone who has some things and whatever my layman experience of it seems like part of the reason diagnosis is challenging especially if you do it from a psychiatric point of view or whatever is it feels very much like if you got a rash and then someone was like well what's the mechanism behind the rash could be a virus could be a bacteria could be an allergy could be some weird fungus could be like uh you know yeah whatever there's so many reasons you could have a rash and it feels like when someone says like oh okay well i i have rejection sensitivity dysphoria i've read is what they call a thing that comes with uh, adhd is like this overprocess you know this um they call it a emotional hyperarousal but like how do you distinguish from that and BPD, you know, or um, anxiety, depression? Exactly. Like you get this brain fog, you're like overthinking things, even even things like um, I've read about things like uh, with autism and people that say like they can't look people in the eyes and, you know, that there's this sort of lack of, uh, you know, empathy or something like that. It's actually like hyper empathy. Like you feel they feel so much people who have that, that you, you've got so yeah. much presence and experience of it that you have to just shut it down because it's too much experience. So it feels like yeah. a lot of crossover with a lot of these things that does seem to just have to do with your reaction. Like what is your way do you, you process things? How do you regulate your responses to normal inputs? Yeah, I think that's, you know, it kind of loops back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, which is this idea of like, look, scientists love nomenclature. Okay. Like we fucking get off on that, man. Like making up funny <laughs> name, like making up names for things that are like unique and people are like, oh, that's a good... 
Like we fucking love that. Okay. Yeah, but I would funny. just caution people. Don't get too wrapped up in that. Don't get too, um, yeah. don't let your focus on the lit nomenclature or the jargon eclipse the point. And the point is to help you manage what you're going through in a responsible, effective way so that you can move towards your values and goals. That's the fucking point. That thing, that thing about your, I think there's something really powerful in establishing your values and goals (laughs) and like even having it like written down on a piece of paper or something for yourself to look at. Yeah. Man, when I was a kid, when I was like in junior high, (laughs) I remember uh, thinking, um, I was just, I mean, I'm terrified all the time. Everyone's scared all the time, but I was like, you know, and I was like, I want to be a brave person. And I was like, that's who I want to be. And in my mind, I was like, that means when something scares me, I have to do it, which was like, you know, a little bit foolish and it's childish and it's masculine and it's like leads you to do stupid things. But this idea that you could establish the kind of person, there's like a Louis L'Amour quote I was obsessed with, uh, which I thought was so good, which was like up to a point in a man's life, they're shaped by their surroundings and circumstances and blah, blah, blah. But at some point it's within everybody's power to say this I am today that I will be tomorrow. And from like a cowboy writer, I fucking like loved it. I was just like, damn, that's so good. And, uh, and I got really into that idea, but, but it seems to be a universal, universally helpful thing whether it's dealing with how I react to partners or politics or the world or my own brain to, to have a, some kind of touchstone externally, like written down, established for yourself, a practice of yeah. like, these are my values. This is who I want to be. This is who I believe I am in my ideal self. And like when everything else is telling me otherwise return to that, try to be that yeah. person. I mean, the faintest of ink outlasts the strongest memory, right? So I think writing that stuff down yes. is, <laughs> is like, good. you got you got to do it. Um, I had a very stupid stoner thought one day about that, that like the invention of writing is like literal magic. That like the idea that you could make yeah. markings on a thing outside of you and that like, you would forget a thing and then one day look at these markings and it would open parts of your brain that like you forgot you had. And you'd be like, oh yes, that that's like literal magic. Like that is, yeah. that's a magic spell. You read a magic spell and it, and it made you know things anyway, that we should rely on that, you know, bibliomancy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, man. Yeah. I, I think it's amazing. So hopefully that's helpful. If that did not, if, if those um, discussions didn't answer people's questions, I hope they'll write us back and, and yes. we can take the I, I think that was great. That was great stuff today. I don't know. I was, that, thank you for all that. That's like, I don't know. I, I had takeaways. That was really helpful. Um, but yes, as, as you write more, write in. If you got questions, you can hit me up at mygoodbadbrain at gmail.com. You can hit us on Instagram or Twitter or wherever. Um, Patreon, blah, 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 blah. Um, oh, let's do just because it's fun. We're almost done. Do you have anything you want to put on the "Don't Kill Yourself" list? Any, any good things in the world this week from you? You know, I think I've done this before, but like I've been playing uh, Call of Duty Warzone with like four friends, oh, yeah. and it's, it's it's so social. It's been really fun. Like it's fun. Yeah. We're like hanging out. You know? Yeah. No, I, that's, that's that's I really enjoyed that. I'm totally in accordance with that. Like the, uh, I just like. We even like sometimes we just play like team fight tactics. It's this like legal. It's basically a card game on League of Legends. Like you're not really like very actively doing stuff, but you just hang out in a chat room and talk with each other. And it's like so nice. I really think the Zoom thing has been like kind of wonderful. I I didn't tell you about this, but I was going to say like 
uh, I was going to talk about this when we're done, but this is probably my thing from the week, which isn't a really a good one, maybe because it's not super accessible, but it's like was such an exciting, cool thing. We've been doing these jujitsu classes on Zoom where like my class still just meets up and tw- twice a week and we do video breakdowns of stuff, which is amazing. This week uh, on Thursday, uh, Damian Maya dropped into our Zoom class what? from Brazil. Real they fucking oh Damian Maya was like in our Zoom class. And of course, our coach Nathan is like he's such a encyclopedic brain about, you know, we've been doing these in-depth breakdowns that he did. We were doing like video breakdowns of things that Marcelo Garcia does. And then showing footage of Damian Maya and how he approaches the situation differently. And then having real Damian Maya there to be like, and also similarly, because they trained together a long time ago and getting to hear like stories from Damian and him like reflecting yeah. on his own. He's like, wow, yeah, I never thought about it, but your breakdown is good. He was like, I was going to stay for 20 minutes, but I stayed for an hour and a half. It was awesome. It was like That's crazy. That's so cool, man. So That's crazy. so cool. Yeah. That's been what like a school. What? I said much respect. Respect. Moito respect. I don't know. Uh, all right. Well, thank you guys yeah. so fucking much for being here. Yeah. And Rogue, I think, um, Rogue Avocado, who's also been doing my quarantine calisthenics today, she's just said yes, COD, in the in the chat room. Uh, we should just get like a, a, a mental health Call of Duty stream going or something like that. That'd be so fun. We got like. Let me tell you, man, RPG in the end game. We just put it like that. <laughs> Dude, I'm going to like, going from like Tarkov and stuff to. So I'm going to like lose my mind I, one way or the other, either because it's so good or because it's so annoying to like, of course, there's RPGs in that game. Just noob tubing all day long. All right. All right. That's enough. Thank you, guys. Uh, uh, noon, I'm going to do quarantine calisthenics again live uh, today. We're going to keep doing it. I, we've done four weeks straight. It's amazing. Um, that's it. Happy Easter. Thank you, Nick. I'm going to hang up now. Thank you, guys. Yeah. All right, see you guys next uh, week. I'll I'll put the stream up sooner this time. <laughs> oh, check out mygoodbedbrain.com if you want to get shirts or anything like that. Check out patreon.com slash mygoodbedbrain if you feel like supporting the show with a couple bucks. And uh, that's it. That's, that's, that's all I got right now. Welcome to my good bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better since I'm medicated. Still not always sure whether I exist or what being a person is.